Hey everybody, welcome in 2012. I'm glad to be back. Was uh, Adam okay last week? Helpful? All right, good. That was very enthusiastic. Okay, um... <laughs> no, no, I'm just <laughs> All right, well, usually you don't get a second plate of applause if you're terrible, so that's good. Um, we're, uh, we're starting a series uh, called Rebuild, and the logic behind it is that um, everybody wants to have a new start, new resolutions, new year, everybody wants a new start, but here's the reality in life. You don't get new starts, okay? That's the reality. There's no such thing as a brand spanking new start. You can turn the corner, you can do something new, you can stop with something old and, and go in a different direction, but, but the past never disappears, and who you've become from the past doesn't just go away. And therefore, if you really want something different, if you really want something new, if you want your resolve to turn into reality, if you want those, that kind of almost rhymed. Um, if you want that stuff to happen, it's not just gonna happen. It's not just going to, oh yeah, I'll just resolve this and then, you know, the past is, no, that's not how it works. Um, you, rebuilding needs to take place. The past has to be faced. The present has to be looked at. A new thing has to happen fundamentally different than the old, right? The, um, new Year's is a time where um, we like to make resolutions, right? But what it really ought to be a time is a time for interventions because the idea that um, we are going to do our resolutions is, is pretty silly, isn't it? It's pretty silly. Um, but it's important to make resolutions because in, remember two times in the passage, the passage this morning, God said, hey, listen, you have to give careful thought to your ways. You've got to give careful thought to your ways or you're, you'll just pass over the most important thing. If you don't pull back, think based on some new principles and give careful thought, you're not, you're not going to even resolve to go in the right direction. Right? Um, but if you, all you do is just kind of think about your life a little bit, that's how we get resolutions, and resolutions usually don't work, right? I mean, think about this. How, how do we, like, if you, if you were to take a class on really how people pick resolutions, it would be something like this. Okay, think about your life and think about something you have absolutely no track record of being successful in changing. Just make a list of things you've hated about yourself for years and that you've never been able to change at all. Okay? And then just pick the most ridiculous, I mean the one that's the worst of all of those, that you have the least track record changing, and put that then at the top of your list of New Year's resolutions. And then just keep going, find the next worst thing that goes second, the third, and then you'll have a list of New Year's resolutions that you can tell people you're going to do, right? And that'll be great. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of like me saying, you know, this year I'm not going to drink more eggnog than water from November to January. Right? I can say that's never going to happen, you know? Or Lexi not drinking hers with whiskey before 11 a.m. <laughs> I, ha I had her kind of permission to say that. Um, and it's not true, by the way. Uh, the things we make resolutions on are not the things that are slowly improving. They tend to think be the things we've been stuck in for a really long time. And therefore, new resolve is futile. It's a silly practice. We, I don't even know why we do it. Um, and so what really needs to happen is not new resolve. What needs to happen is something from the outside. What we really need is intervention. Anything that's on our list of resolutions is probably something we stink at. Therefore, what we need is not more personal resolve. We, that's, that's probably the list of things we need intervention for. We need somebody to step in and be like, um, you've got a problem. 
we're going to send you to rehab for that thing. Because the, the reality is, is we're not, we don't all need to go to celebrity rehabs, um, but we all need a little intervention sometimes. Is that, we could write a song. You want to write a song on that? We all need a little intervention sometimes. It's like that song, We're All a Little Racist Sometimes. Did you ever hear that on YouTube? That's funny. Okay. Um, w- here, here's what I've learned. I'm not, as I'm, I'm still spring chicken on some things, but one of the things I've learned in my life so far is that I almost never change a really ingrained problem without intervention. Somebody, in some way, is going to have to get in my face and get in my way and make me see the truth. And I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing we human beings are. And in my really late teens, one of my early pastors sort of taught me of the importance of giving a good number of people in your life permission to criticize you or to offer correction really directly. And um, most, pe- most people that I have over the years said that to won't, um, but a few people will. And when those people are people who I know also love me, it al- almost always is really helpful. Um, I mean, just ask Adam. We've been helping him a lot for months. Um, in fact, just, just this week, I told one of the staff members here at High Point, I said, listen, um, from, from, from now on, you have the right to say to me, Nick, you're being a senior pastor. Which, by, by the way, senior pastors are notorious for blowing off the good ideas of their junior staff and by not listening to tons of stuff and that everybody who works for the church and everybody who serves the church knows what has to happen, but they're just waiting for the senior pastor to come around because all he wants to do is just go into his office and read his Bible and preach. And so you just can't get anything done. You can't get any changes to happen. And so I told her, I said, listen, if you need to tell me if it's true, you just say, Nick, you're being a senior pastor. And we agree that that's what this means because I don't want you guys to work in this environment. And I know that I am going to be prone to fall into the rut of my calling. I spent seven years at another church, mad at the senior pastor of that church, right? And in a week, I'm going to be the same thing. I'm going to do the same thing because it's—and I need people to say that kind of stuff to me, right? And, and here—so do you. Um, our friends or the people in our lives can see pretty clearly the intervention we need sometimes. God sees it the most clearly, and we see it the least clearly, And therefore, intervention is one of the things we need the most. And God's intervention in your life and in my life is exactly what we need if we really want a rebuild or a refurbish. And I don't think that there's any way around that. Um, Now, when you look at Haggai 1, Haggai is a great example of how God does interventions. The Bible's full of them. But Haggai, Haggai itself as a book is a, is, a, is a whole intervention. But chapter one is, is really well. And so, in, but in order to understand the science of this, however, um, I watched an episode of A&E's program called Intervention. I don't even know if you exist. I didn't know this existed until this week. But I did watch a program so I knew how to tell the story of an intervention. It has four parts. The first part is you meet the problem. Right? They have this like section on this person who has this incredibly like crazy habit. They're like smoking crack in their living room and their kid is on fire and like, you know, they're just, they're like, they're a total mess. And, and the whole purpose of that segment is for you to judge that person. 
That's the whole purpose of that segment, is for you to be like, we should just shoot her. This is crazy. Like, how do, who would make these decisions? This person is a nut, right? Because part two is when they humanize her, and the whole purpose of that section is to make you feel guilty that you judged her. Right? So after you're like, oh my gosh, there's this whole section about how like her mom was a crackhead and their parents divorced when she was two. And then she like got pregnant with this boyfriend. He left her and her mom went back on crack in the same month. And then she lost her child. And like, you're like, oh man. And the whole point of that is is right when you feel guilty for judging her and you start to feel like this poor girl has been through enough. And you totally lose your resolve to do the intervention which is what they're wasting 54 minutes to get to anyway, is then, they, then you see her like hallucinating that there are bl- bugs under her skin, right? It's like the, oh no, nope, she needs it. It's that segment where she's like, there's people after me and there's, there's big roaches under my skin and I think that my head is made of pink lemonade. You know, it's like that. It's, you're kind of like, okay, she's been through a lot, but we're going to have to go ahead and do this intervention. Right? And then you have the intervention, and then it's all like, oh, and then they go to rehab and whatever, all that kind of stuff. Sorry? Um, Here's the good news. The good news is Haggai is totally not like that story. And here's why. Because the readers of Haggai and the people in 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 the book, the first three things had already happened. Everybody already knew what had happened. These folks had already gone into exile. They'd already had a problem. God had already 430 years of absolute disobedience, including rape, murder, killing of children. I mean, just a very jaded history. God judges them, sends them for 70 years in exile in a whole other country, right? Then he renews the covenant with them, right? And he invites them back after 70 years. They travel 600 miles on the word of a prophet that said— that had a vision of a valley full of dead people. And God said to that guy, this is Ezekiel 37, can these dry bones, can these dead people come back to life? And Ezekiel gives a diplomatic answer, only you know, right? And then he sees this vision of them coming back to life, that, that the people of God that are totally dead, they could come back to life. That could happen. And these people go, oh my gosh, that could happen. So they leave 70 years of investment in houses, in vineyards, in orchards, in cultivation, in and financial and economic connections, they leave all of that to travel 600 miles through a desert back to a place that is a heap of rubble. And they try to rebuild that, and it starts going well for a little while, and then it goes really bad. There's all these economic problems, there's all these political problems, they're threatened with terrorism, all this kind of stuff is happening, and, and though things go well for about two years, then it just kind of gets in a rut and things stop for 16 years. And Haggai comes at the end of that. They came and they rebuilt, they rebuilt the altar and they started doing sacrifices, but then that, that all died and the temple still rubble and they just gave up. They just stopped. They just quit building the temple. They quit rebuilding the people. They quit rebuilding the country. They didn't rebuild the wall. They just didn't do any of that stuff and they just built their own houses. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? And at this point, they're done building their own houses. Right? God, remember what God says? He says, Is it, you guys have the paneling up. Like, all your trim work is done, and it's nice. And we still haven't cleared the rocks away so we can start building my house. Really? All that stuff's all, that's all water under the bridge when Haggai shows up. Haggai is, Haggai is just the interventionist. They've already done the documentary, and it's Haggai, he just comes in and he lays the smack down. That's all there is to it. That's his job. And that's where we meet the thing when we come to chapter one. And 
what, we, what we've got to realize then when we come in is that we, the assumption is we are already in that place too. The assumption is that we know that we're human beings and that we're, listen, we're less holy than these people, okay? These are the people who, like if I told you right now, listen, you guys, listen, seriously, God is doing an amazing work in Beijing, an amazing work in Beijing right now. And they just need help. They need people to come and do the work. And um, so here's what we're going to do. We're all going to quit our jobs. We're all going to sell our houses. We're all going to break all ties with everything that we know. And we are gonna, we're going to Beijing, all of us, together. And we're going to build a church, and we're going to preach the gospel, and we're going to live under a communist dictatorship, and we're going to have our internet emails edited, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be there. We're going to do it. We're going to do the work. Like, do you think we would all just go home and make our arrangements? <laughs> now, that's not a perfect because God isn't actually calling us to do that, I don't think, and he did call these people. But, but, but they were—but they were, see, God didn't—listen, God didn't call everybody to leave Babylon, did he? Ruth happens after this. So God intentionally leaves some of his people in Babylon so that when Haman rises up to murder all the Jewish people, there were these strategic Jewish people there so that that wouldn't happen. God's intention was that there would be some Jews left in Babylon. Only some would come back to the promised land. And these are the people who want to do that. These are some awesome people in this 16-year do-nothing spiritual rut where they need a God intervention. And so what I'm saying is this sermon is not for non-Christians. It's for non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is for you. But listen, if you've been a Christian 40, 50 years, this is for you. These are amazing long-term God followers. And apparently, they don't even really know they're in a rut. They just think the culture's turned against them. It's, oh, it's anti-Jewish. These people don't like us. So yeah, the work of God isn't going to go forward. It's just not time right now. It's not time right now. We're not going to take any ground right now. Things are difficult. I, I don't know if you ever heard any Christians talk like that. But that—and what God is saying is, listen, that's all a bunch of junk, you guys. Come on. You're just in a 16-year rut. And it happened little by little by little by little by little. And it's time to intervene and to break up some new ground and to, and to, and to do something. Because the fact is, is you guys, is you have the paneling up in your house, and we haven't moved the stones away to even start building my house, right? You guys look like you're really with me on this one. All right. <clears throat> now, if it's true that what we all really need is intervention, not just resolution. Resolution isn't going to do it. We need intervention. And if um, without intervention, we can't rebuild, at least not the way God rebuilds, um, why should we be happy about God being a bold interventionist? Why should that make us happy? Well, are you happy right now with what I said? Oh, Nick, that's just such good news you're telling me. I'm just thrilled. I could go for a month on that. You might not be feeling that way. I've been told my sermons don't always have that effect. But listen, there are a, at least a couple of reasons why we should be extremely encouraged that God is like this extremely encouraged that God is like this. And I want to follow two lines of thought, two reasons. One is that if God is an interventionist, then intervention assumes good news that is good news, and intervention assumes bad news that is good news. Okay? Good news is good news, bad news is good news. And so if we'll first do the good news that is good news. Are you with me? Good. 
Intervention assumes good news that is good news. And here's what it assumes. All intervention assumes that the recipient of the intervention is non-disposable. Every intervention assumes if you're doing an intervention, the person you're doing the intervention to is non-disposable. Everybody who does an intervention engages in, in, in a lot of risk. They lay everything down to do it. If you do an intervention with somebody, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you risk. It's going to cost you possibly your relationship with that person. It could totally fail. It could backfire. It could cause slander against you. It probably will. It has all kinds of possibility of blowing up in your face and you losing everything that you thought you had. And the thing is, you just got to the point where you're willing to risk it. But the assumption is the person is worth risking everything you could get from that person or enjoy through that person or, or have in relationship to that person. You're, you're ready to risk everything. And even if that person does not accept it, I don't think interventions are particularly high success in our, you know, endeavors. But what it always means is that that person is worth it to you. They are non-disposable. You will not write them off. You are not willing to do that. Even when things go really, 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 really bad. And even if three previous interventions went poorly as well. Anybody who does an intervention is willing to put on the line everything they could enjoy about you for you. And what this passage and many other passages in the Bible declare really boldly is, is that is how God relates to you. So is he tough? Yeah. Is he going to intervene? Yeah. Is it going to be brutal? Yeah. Is it going to be really offensive to you? Absolutely. But what is the underlying assumption? If he does that, you are not disposable to him. He will come after you to the last It may cause you to destroy yourself even worse if you reject the intervention. But he will come. Um, if you, look, if you read the history of the people of Israel, it is amazing that God was not through with these people. I mean, these are people, he, he went and he promised stuff to them, and they just didn't do it, and they just didn't do it, and then he goes and he pulls them out of a whole country, delivers the whole race of them out of slavery. And they, they, but they aren't in the desert, but a, you know, a couple weeks, and they screw everything up, and then they do this, and then, and then there's 430 years of this, and it comes down to child sacrifice and all kinds of intrigues, and he finally throws, I mean, listen, there are a lot of other people in the world. A lot of other people in the world. I mean, God could have just let those people go. He could have picked another bunch of people. There's no reason he couldn't have. He could have just gone and picked some Slovakians or something and made them the new covenant people. There's no reason he couldn't have done that. I mean, it says literally, it says literally in the Old Testament that when God sent them away into exile, he called it, at least in two places in the Bible, a divorce. He divorced them. Isaiah 51, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Right? He's basically saying, listen, I sold you into slavery. I divorced your family. You're out. Go find the certificate of divorce so you know your real status. Jeremiah 3 says, I, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Listen, what happens— what normally happens when a man just divorces his wife because she's an adulterer? 
again and 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 again. What normally happens? He normally just hates her guts the rest of his life, right? Or makes nice for the kids, or I don't know what, but he doesn't. But you see what, do you see the picture in the scripture? It says in Haggai that his, here's his attitude. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. That's the spiritual marriage that Isaiah 50 is referring to. And so it's kind of like, now they're back and he's like, listen, I'm, yeah, I sent you away. I wrote you, I'm still your husband. Now, I mean, think about that. Think about what social situation you'd just be like, look, that's just not getting back together. Right? A really, really, really messy divorce that was the other person's fault. Normally that is not the situation in which the other partner is like, listen, I, I, had to, I, I had to do that. That had to be done. We're divorced. But listen, I, don't want, I actually don't want to stay divorced. I'm st- in, my, in my mind, in my heart, in my will is I am still your husband. And I, even though we're divorced right now and I divorced you, my goal is that that intervention and my interjection of love would bring this back around and we would remarry. I, and, and Haggai, he says, I'm reproposing. Are you through with that? Are you done? Let's get back together now. You see what? That's crazy. That is exactly what God is saying he is like as an interventionist. You probably count on one finger how many husbands act that way or how many wives feel that way when they go through that experience. But that is the emotional potency of God's desire for his people, especially the worst who need the most intervention. That's good news. That's hard news. But I think it's good news. It's good news, it's good news. The problem that we have, I think, with that, and I think that this is really important, and let me just say, before I say any of this, for those of you who are politically conservative, um, I am not against capitalism, okay? But it may sound that way for just a minute, so just try to hear what I'm actually saying, okay? Um, we have a very, time, very hard time imagining rebuilding and that people are non-disposable in a disposability culture. When you live in a culture that functions um, in what Dorothy Sayers pejoratively called a culture of junk and trash, in which everything in our life is disposable, everything. We don't mend things, we don't fix things, right? You can probably count on one hand the number of things that you have in your life that you would fix rather than just throw away. Why? Because in our culture, everything is cheaper to what? Just buy new than to try to fix, right? Your coffee maker, you're not going to fix that, right? Your, you know, a kitchen knife or almost anything in your house. You, may, you might get your snowblower fixed, right? Your lawnmower, your car. That's about it. Try to get your kids maybe, you know? But almost everything in our life, our clothing, like people, you know, people used to, like my mom was telling me she had this jacket that she got a compliment on. She's like, I've had that 50 years. You know, people used to buy clothes thinking that. I remember there's, I think in one of the Oliver Twist novels, one of the characters who's a girl, she's, she's poor and she's in an orphanage, but people can tell by her clothes, as destroyed as they are, that they were good when they were bought. They were that high quality. Because you didn't buy stuff to throw, you bought it to last. 
But we live in a culture where nothing lasts. And, and let, me just, let me just remind us, it's okay for us to have things that are disposable. But here's the thing, economics becomes psychology unless you intentionally separate the two. And so Pete, you look around. Do people act like they're non-disposable? Or do people behave culturally, in our culture, do people behave like they're not disposable? And do they treat people like they're not disposable? Or do they treat people like they're disposable? I remember a few years ago, I went to, uh, I was in England coming back from India, and I, I, I stayed in England for about a week, and I went, I did stuff in London, and I decided to go to Oxford for a day because I decided that if I read a book in one of the coffee houses at Oxford, that I could tell people I'd studied at Oxford. <laughs> so you'll be glad to know that you have a pastor who studied at Oxford. Um, but uh, one of the things that was really funny is everywhere you went when I was there, there were these displays about the saving the earth. Saving the earth, saving the all, I mean, these pictures of corporations destroying stuff and pictures of the beauty of things and just all, I mean, they had just sort of given over the town to this. But everywhere I went were 18 and 20-year-old, 21-year-olds year old, smoking like chimneys and just engaging in all kinds of stuff and talk, like you just listen to conversations that just show that they were all into saving the earth. That was really hip and I'm for that, but they didn't believe that about themselves. They didn't, they, they, and, and I don't, don't want to pick on smokers. Just look, look broadly across how people act, the kinds of things we do, the kind of ways we act, the kind of ways we spend, the kind of ways we engage and disengage from relationships. Everything's disposable. And then you're supposed to believe deep in your heart, back in your psychology, that God's real intention is that you are not disposable. That he, you are going to be eternal. The one absolute non-negotiable about your eternal destiny is that you are not disposable. How do you believe that in a culture where you get something new from Amazon or eBay and it's already broken and you just buy another one, you don't even bother to send it back. Who's done that? Right? Yeah. It's just a hassle. It's just another $24. Who cares? And listen, friends, the, the sociology and the economics of our culture gets into our head. I'm not saying we got to change the economics, but we got to put a division between those two, or we can't accept, we can't believe that we're non-disposable. We can't accept that good news, and we can't be motivated by it, and we'll just be, we'll just be relying on our own resolution. We won't receive any resolution from him, and his intervention will not work long-term. Okay, secondly, Where am I? Okay. Intervention assumes good news that is bad news. Okay. Actually, it's the other way around. It's bad news that is good news. Um, intervention is a last-ditch effort to jolt a confused or deluded person back to reality. Right? That's what an intervention is. Right? You're trying to kind of be like, hello, you don't see this right. Um, so the bad news is, is that if God engages in intervention with us, which he does constantly, or seeks to do constantly, it's just part of the spiritual growth process, um, 
then what that means is that we are confused, deluded, and deceived about reality. That's true. And the, the fact of human beings is, is that we do not trust in with our hearts what our minds believe. We, we value something in our hearts and we use our minds to justify it. And if you need an example that that's true, just look at anybody who's in love, right? And you can give them the best rational argument that that person is not right for them and you are not going to get anywhere, are you? No, you're not. They're going to be like, oh, he's perfect for me. And you'll be like, no, he, he's, he's not. Oh, he, you, just don't, you just don't know him like I do. No, I know. Um, actually, I'm a grown-up, and I can read people really well, and I know him a lot better than you do. And he stinks. And um, I'm just going to tell you, I've watched this happen 300,000 times in my life, and just, you're just on the road to misery. No, he's different. You know, like that, you're like, you're crazy! Right? But that's, that's how the human mind works. Not just when you're in love, it happens all the time. Our heart's affections are set on something, and then we use our mind to, to justify it. Um, like, for example, the Star Wars movies are coming out again, right? Like, everybody knows Anakin's going to the dark side except him, right? <laughs> that boy is going to the dark side for two movies. But because he's, he, he has this woman who's an idol, he can't see it. Um, but, but, here, but here's the thing you have to remember. If you don't get—oh, sorry, this slide for this. If you don't get the intervention that you need, you end up with the consequences— you're left with the consequences that the delusion will always create. For example, um, the, the, the Detroit Lions defensive backs, their secondary, needed an intervention apparently weeks ago. Okay? And they did not get one. And so they were left with the ridiculous pummeling they received last night at the hands of the New Orleans Saints. Okay? And that's what happens when you do not get the intervention that you need. And you would have thought allowing the Green Bay Packers to score 40-something points would have woken them up, but no, it doesn't. And, that's, and we're just like that, right? And so we have to accept that intervention is going to force us to face facts and feel pain. And listen, that's exactly what God does here. Because listen, those who are unwilling to dwell on their past get to live in it. If you're the kind of person that's too sentimental to be like, well, I don't like to dwell on my past because my, the past is the past and the future is the future. Well, the past created who you are, okay? So if you are unwilling to dwell on your past, you are going to get to dwell in it the rest of your life. So we'll just see if that works. One of the things, one of the things I, the only thing I learned really from the 45 minutes of agony of watching the Annie, Annie show intervention was this. The, the, here's what the guy who was doing the intervention said. He said, listen, we're going to go over to the house. We're going to do the intervention with this girl. He said, listen, nothing she says matters except, yes, I'll go to rehab. Everything else is just noise. Don't pay any attention to any of it. We're, we're, she'll say, she'll throw out accusations. She'll, oh, it doesn't matter. All that matters is are you going to rehab on your own or do we need to use the police? That's the only real question. And we're just trying to encourage her to go. That's it. Nothing else matters. And one of the reasons we get so spiritually frustrated is because we don't agree that that's how our intervention with Jesus ought to work. 
But you need, what we need to understand is, is that Jesus is the most emotionally healthy person in the universe. And when he comes to do an intervention, he's not going to enable us, is he? He's not going to do that. He's going to intervene. And all the stuff we say about how mean he is and how ugly God is and how he makes us suffer and why didn't he do this and you hurt me and I've been through a lot and don't you know all that? It's all noise. Not because it doesn't matter. It matters that you were hurt. That matters. It matters that you're hurting right now. That matters. It matters. But listen, it is not relevant to the rebuild. It's not relevant to the intervention. It's not because it doesn't, it's not relevant to what needs to happen. That's the issue. And we smokescreen on why we don't want to say yes or no. And we, and we try to undermine the legitimacy of God's intervention. And God's intervention is legitimate and he knows that he's not backing down. And if he has to use the cops, he'll use the cops. And you're, you're never going to push him back emotionally. It's never going to happen. He's never going to enable you. And it's going to feel really mean. But here's why. He knows the only thing that matters is yes. Say whatever you want. Use whatever you want. Negotiate however you want. He knows the only thing that matters is your yes. And I'm sorry that that may be offensive, and I'm sorry if that feels brutal, but God is the most emotionally healthy person in the universe. He is going to do the intervention, and you are not disposable. And so that's what happens. In, I mean, think about it. That's what happens in this passage, right? Haggai 1, 2, 6, he says, These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. I mean, think about that. They've been there 16 years. Their houses are built. It's not, it's, and then, so what are they, what's the smokescreen? It's timing, right? It's not time right now. Give me a little more time. It's not, and he goes, listen, right? Then the word of the Lord came high. Is it time? Okay, listen. God is sarcastic sometimes, okay? You know, that doesn't mean you can be sarcastic however you want, but God will engage in redemptive sarcasm. Right? And I'm trying to make that the only times when I do, and I don't always succeed. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? So paneling is both relatively expensive, and it, it's the last thing you do, right? So they've built nice houses, and they're totally finished. While this house remains a ruin. Now remember, th this house spiritually, when we bring it into the present, does not equate to this house. This is not a church sermon. The house represented the purposes of God among his people in the world. And at that moment, what was necessary in the purposes of God among his people was for them to come back from Babylon and build the temple of the Lord so that his name could be known and he could take pleasure in his people and his people could take pleasure in him. And that is what was necessary it's not about building the church. It's about God. It's about whether or not these people took pleasure in God or in themselves, and whether or not they took pleasure in God's glory or tried to build their own glory. And the reason why that sounds like it's important is because when we fall into building our own houses like this, we fall into building our own kingdoms, we always believe that God's pleasure and glory is in conflict with our pleasure and glory. 
That is the first thing a sinful mentality will create is it will attempt to tell you and make you buy into and really believe in that either you can care about God's pleasure and glory or you can care about your own because God has all these nasty rules and he doesn't want you to have fun and he only made you to be miserable and to cower before him and to like fall on your face and be covered in dirt and like be— when nothing in the Bible teaches that and never has and never will— God sees his pleasures and glory as infinitely increasing in because they're totally compatible and cooperative with our real created pleasures and glory. And he will not let us create our own because they are sick little ones. But when we recognize the pleasure and glory that we were created to seek is completely compatible with his, and when they're connected, it, in, it infinitely increases and magnifies and multiplies the pleasures and glory of our life by being united with his, we realize there is no conflict. The conflict is in us and is in our perspective and in our unwillingness to trust God. I was listening to these, there's these great parenting talks that um, the, uh, uh, the resurgence put up, um, and, and one of them was about um, why choice-based parenting doesn't work very well with kids, because, it, it, because it, it's offered in a time when kids actually need to learn about authority, when instead we're not teaching them about authority and we're actually undermining it because it's a, it's a parenting stage issue. And he says, he, he said, in that stage, what you should be doing is you give the kids ch choices within what's there, but you don't give them very many choices. In fact, you tell them what to do most of the time. And when they struggle against it, you don't say, what he said, what you say is, sweetheart, you can trust daddy to do what's best for you and to know what's right for you. You can trust mommy that we have your best desires at heart, that we know your desires, and to the extent to which we can, we want to allow them. But what we're most interested in is you doing what's right and trusting God and for you to grow up into who God wants you to be so that your pleasure and happiness can be wedded to God's pleasure and happiness and you can walk in that the rest of your life. You can trust us. And we don't, parent, we don't spiritually parent ourselves that way. We don't tell ourselves, Nick, you can trust God in this. You can trust that he's taking you from this pleasure that you want to seek to a different way of seeking it over here because he wants to take you to wed that pleasure with his own and, and magnify its effectiveness immensely in your life so that you can participate in his glory, not just make something of your own. Right? You may not think that. And so therefore, you get, this, you get this intervention. You get verses seven and eight where he says, listen. He doesn't say, oh, you poor little thing. He says, listen, you go get some wood and you bring it to the temple mount and you start building that temple. And the assumption is because you're never gonna change until you get past the fundamental con conflict of pleasures and glories. There is a conflict inside of you. There's a conflict inside of me. There's a pleasure and glory conflict. And we are never going to make any progress. We're never going to get anywhere until that pleasure and glory conflict gets settled. And for these people, they had to stop worrying about their own houses and stop worrying about their own fields and gardens that weren't producing anything. And they needed to forget about themselves and they needed to go and get some wood. 
And they need to trust daddy that he has the ability to take care of their gardens. He has the ability to take care of his, their fig trees and their olive trees. He has the ability to protect them from the terrorists. He has the ability to bring about what he promised he would bring about. And he just lays it down. And he doesn't even say, it'll be good for you. He just says, you go do it because when you build it, I'm going to be pleasured and honored. You see how he doesn't enable them? He doesn't say, oh, sweetie, if you do it, you'll be so happy. You know, if you'll just trust me, I'll make everything okay for you. Because then we'll, we'll, you're going to do it all for the wrong reasons. You can't do it because it's good for you. You got to do it because it's good for him. Because it's right. Because it's true. It's honorable. It's good. It's beautiful. It's, it's what is. It's disinterested to you. It's not in your own interest. The way you see them, you can only experience it on the other side. And so he has to say, go do it for me. You go, you build my temple for me so that I can take pleasure in it and everybody can know how great I am. And when you do that, you know what you might find out? That God is pleasurable and he is glorious and you can enjoy it forever. The first, okay, I should pray. The first step, um, Therefore, the first step in this whole rebuild deal is you've got to face these verses. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. You've tried so much. It hasn't worked out. And it hasn't just not worked out because it doesn't work out. It actually hasn't worked out because I'm against you. I mean, he basically says, I've actually intentionally cursed you. It's part of the intervention. Because if things go well for you, you're never going to listen when I intervene. You'll never walk in blessing. You'll always be... You, you'll walk, you might walk in success, but you'll never walk in blessing. I'd much rather. You see, right? And he says, he says, listen, consider your ways. Just go. Just go get the wood. Just do it. You can trust me, he's saying. And then once they do it, it hasn't, they haven't but picked up a hammer. And he sends another message, right? I'm with you. He doesn't say, I'll give you stuff yet, does he? He just says, I'm with you. And what is it? What's the effect of that? It says it stirs up Zerubbabel, the king. And it stirs up Joshua, the high priest. And they're like, dude, we're going to do this. And then all the people, they get stirred up. And what happens? They build a stinking temple. Sorry, I'm 35. That shouldn't happen. But they, they, they do, right? They build a temple. It happens. It didn't happen for 16 years. It hadn't happened for 70 years. They, but they did it. They were, they were, they had no, no grain left in the barn. They, it was all on the ground. They had nothing. No employment. They were totally destitute. They just had the tree harvest and nothing had come in. And they, 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 <laughs> they had some water and dirt. And God's like, go build a temple. And they're like, you know what? We're going to build a temple. And they did. And listen, if you will consider your ways, and if you will consider the one who engaged in the greatest intervention. Nobody had harder words than Jesus. And nobody did them more lovingly and for more loving purpose than Jesus. If you will consider that God is an interventionist, if you will consider that the first step in really rebuilding is his intervention, if you will accept that you're going to have to open up and let it hit you, if, you're, if you can realize that God has one interest for you to get you to yes, everything else is noise because there's one thing we need. If you will accept that, if you will open yourself to it, if you, will tr if you can trust your father, this father, you can trust this savior. If you will trust him, 
and allow his intervention and carefully consider your ways. Man, he can build stuff that you never dreamed could be built. And you, you gotta take, but you gotta take steps. You know, he goes, go get the wood. You gotta do something. What do you need to do? I don't know what you need to do. Some of you have been a Christian for a while, but you've never really engaged the Bible. Go to, an, go to an adult Bible fellowship. Learn something. You can't appreciate God, his pleasure and his glory, if you don't know anything about him, right? He brings about change when we get together as Christians and, and, and work it through and confess it and let other people engage in intervention in our lives. That happens best in small groups usually. There's like 40 of them in this church. You could be in one. Get in one. And if you're new to the church, there's ways to get to know people who want to get involved in like just helping us all just go get the wood and bring it and build and, and really have something happen. And if you're brand new, these are the best opportunities for you to come and kind of meet the people who are fellow travelers on this. But you have to do something. You can't just go, oh, I carefully consider my ways. No, you got you to gotta go. You got to jump. You got to act. You got to say yes. And then you got to get in the van. Right? But the fact that God is an interventionist is good news, it's good news. You are not disposable to him. And it's bad news, it's good news. It's gonna hurt, but you will not then face the consequences that you would otherwise, and that you can see that there is compatibility between God's pleasures and glory and your own. They're not in conflict. And the pleasures and glories in your own life can be increased and multiplied exponentially beyond your wildest dreams when they connect with God's own pleasures and glories in a way that you could never enjoy life apart from him when you think that they're conflicting. So I want to encourage you as we start this kind of series, as we start 2011, don't put your hope in your resolutions. Put your hope in the one Savior, Jesus, who is the great interventionist, who will not let you go, who will not turn you loose, who will not treat you as disposable, and who will bring you to the place in every way he can so that you would see that his pleasures and glory could be your pleasures and glory. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd build us. We pray that that this work could happen. We pray that you'd help us to consider our ways. We pray that you'd help us to open ourselves to your interventions. We pray that you'd help, you'd work through your scriptures, through friends, through people around us, through preaching, through whatever, um, but that you would intervene and that we would be people who would go away encouraged knowing that the minute we put on the sandals to go get the wood, you come back with another message, I'm with you. So that we wouldn't be left to the potency of our own resolutions but that we would find ourselves taken up in the power of your resolute desire to save us and help us to start by opening ourselves to a yes to all of your interventions in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.